When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago The Last Ultimatum Today is the 4th of August 2014 and on this day in history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. The wages of the Schlieffen Plan must have been coming into view on this day 100 years ago, as German infantry's first task in the First World War would be to capture the Belgian superfortress of Liège, which had been heavily reinforced and fortified over the previous days. It wasn't just the fact that Belgium's King Albert had rode out to Parliament at 11am, and asked those present whether the deputies wished to maintain intact the sacred gift of our forefathers. It was the fact that the Belgians knew the Germans were coming, the Germans knew that the Belgians knew they were coming, and yet the German chief of staff Maltke carried on regardless. As if operating in a remarkably similar state of mind to his Chancellor, Theobald von Bethmann Hallweg, in the days before, when the Chancellor had made the decision to declare war despite the fact that this would paint Germany in the worst possible light, Moltke certainly understood that the capture of Liège would be a difficult obstacle to overcome, that is, if Belgium actually resisted, which few people in Berlin expected they would. Oh, the poor fools, a German diplomat at the legation in Belgium, soon to leave the region, commented. Oh, the poor fools, why don't they get out of the way of the steamroller? We don't want to hurt them, but if they stand in our way, they'll be ground into the dirt. Oh, the poor fools. As if expecting Brussels to simply accept the terms, to roll over and capitulate to German demands and the German sense of reasoning that, because of the impending war with France, Germany was forced to occupy Belgium, Germany had made little or no efforts to prepare for a long drawn-out slog at Liège. Belgian sappers, preparing their minds days in advance, blew the critical bridges along their Vermeuse as planned, dramatically hampering the six German infantry brigades and three cavalry divisions designated for the seizure of the region. German forces had not even been kitted out with pontoon bridges, so they mostly had to turn back and delay the entire process, which Maltke maintained would take the shape of a lightning-fast storming of the area. 
Maltko was attempting to stick to the timeline of the Schlieven plan, and was all too aware that both France and Russia had a number of days on Germany's mobilisation processes. Timing was of the essence, so the Chief of Staff's blundering headlong into perhaps the most fortified region in the Low Countries was explained away as a grim necessity once the German units did begin to encounter resistance on a level not expected. The entire attack was a fiasco, and was hardly a good omen for things to come considering what was expected of these same German men as they were slaughtered in droves in hopeless offensives against an impregnable enemy. However, though the human cost was horrendous, it was the effect it had across the English Channel that would have the greatest impact on the German war effort. The day before, having established vague pretenses for what would constitute British intervention, and having delivered a speech noting the delivery of an ultimatum to Belgium by Germany, Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary, had sufficiently fired up most members of Parliament and his own party to feel confident in the support of the majority. Britain went to bed, not yet having made its stance clear to Germany with regards to Belgium, the German ambassador even feeling confident enough in British inaction to send a message home claiming that Britain would remain neutral. Grey hadn't even written up an ultimatum by the next morning. The most he had done was sent a warning against German violation of Belgium earlier this morning, having developed this worded protest during the cabinet meeting yesterday evening. In other words, Germany was largely unsure whether Britain would involve itself if Belgium was invaded. Considering the amount of time Grey had talked about it in his speech the previous day, it would have surely have seemed to the German ambassador that the protection of the French coasts was more important, that because of the French trusting of their northern naval security to the United Kingdom, it was imperative that Germany did not attack these undefended coasts. Germany's ambassador had given confident assurances that Germany would not violate these coasts and thus put Britain in a difficult position. Though it is not known if Germany would genuinely have been able to honour this agreement, considering the fact that total war required the complete attack on every source of strength that the enemy could muster. Perhaps, having only known of the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71, which was over in a matter of months, the German ambassador felt confident to guarantee such issues because he didn't know the position Germany would soon be in. In this German ambassador Lichnowsky's mind, France would be overrun on land if all went according to plan, and Germany thus wouldn't need to violate her coasts at all. Expecting a short war, expecting a short victory, and believing to be acting in defence against the preemptive mobilisations of the Entente, Germany's Chancellor Bethmann understood the value of maintaining British neutrality, but he must have known, when his soldiers crossed the Belgian border at 8am this morning, that London was not going to like it. His later attitude suggests that the thought had never even occurred to him that Britain would honour the 1839 treaty that they had based their entire objections towards the Belgian violation off of. But then Bethwin was hardly well acquainted with Grey's innermost thoughts on British policy. In fact, it is fair to say that few within either the Central Powers or the Entente would have reckoned for the force of argument to be strong enough to make a case for British intervention, especially had they seen Grey's unusual speech of the day before. Like so many issues of the now fading July crisis though, the obstacles of persuasion were overcome by the hammer blows to public sentiment that were dealt out by the incredibly insensitive central powers. When news of German units in field grey uniforms pouring over the border reached the cabinet that same morning, it soon became impossible to hold back the tide of anger and shock that overcame whatever misgivings one had the day before. Judging from the weight of feeling that greeted the news of German action this morning, one wonders whether Grey even needed to have made a speech the previous day at all. 
Of course, he could not have known, or perhaps have believed, that Germany would position itself on the chopping block yet again, and sacrifice its image for the umpteenth time that week. We don't know exactly what was said in the Tuesday morning meeting, but we do know that, according to Asquith, the British Prime Minister, the news of German actions simplified matters. Because within hours, by 2pm, Britain had sent Germany an ultimatum of its own that gave the German government until midnight German time to reverse its course and evacuate Belgium, or Britain would declare war. This meant that, if the clock struck 11pm in London without any word of change, then the British people would know that their country was now at war with Germany. But war was already underway between Germany and France. Having declared war the night before, the process of ratifying and supporting the war by means of approving war credits and the essential governmental party-wide unity in the face of the external threat became the top priority in both capitals. When French Prime Minister René Viviani addressed the deputies of both of France's joint houses in a session at 3pm, it was a relatively easy sell. Germany, crucially, had declared war first, making it a question of national defence and survival against the eternal German enemy. The deputies were informed now of the Italian declaration of neutrality, which would free up French forces for German campaigns, an announcement which caused a rapturous ovation, while Viviani denied that any French units had begun attacking, and didn't dare mention the fact that the French ally Russia had been preparing for war since the 25th of July, instead claiming that Russia had continued to negotiate for peace up until the German declaration of war on her had come through. Again, German actions over the previous days had made the issue of persuasion an easy task for the Prime Minister. He ended his speech by urging the deputies, in the name of Right and liberty to help us in bearing the burden of our heavy responsibility, the comfort of a clean conscience and the conviction that we have done our duty. The applause was deafening. At the German Reichstag, Chancellor Bethmann was undertaking a similar spectacle. Here were the landing of the last vocal blows in a war that was soon to acquire its own unique and horrendous personality. Bethmann addressed the deputies present at 3.30pm, for similar reasons as Viviani was doing across the border. Only in defence of a just cause shall our sword fly from its scabbard, Bethmann began. Russia has set fire to the building. We are at war with France and Russia, a war that has been forced upon us. Bethmann actually presented the procession of events that led to this point, including the fact that German policy had been to support Austria-Hungary in its pursuing of a localised war with Serbia, in the hope that such a war would revitalise the Habsburg Empire and improve its standing. It was for this reason that the blank cheque was issued over the 5th to the 6th of July, and it was also because of this that Bethmann's own attempt at mediation were so disingenuous until it was too late, though Bethmann of course didn't mention these two issues by name. He omitted facts just like Viviani had done, but he did emphasise the fact that Russia had mobilised first, a claim which considerable proof existed of, so Bethmann claimed, in a statement we now know to be true, but which wouldn't come to light for many years. Painting a picture that portrayed an innocent Germany surrounded by hostile forces determined to arm themselves, Bethmann asked the deputies, Were we now to wait further in patience until the nations of either side of us chose the moment for their attack? To be greeted with the expected shouts of, Nine! Nine! Indeed, this presentation reflects Germany's response to events in some way, since while Bethmann may have believed that by declaring war and acting first, his state would be able to respond first, 
What he was actually doing was presenting a Germany that had previously only reacted to events, however pathetically and ignorantly, as a Germany that had vindictively planned to launch Europe into an aggressive war. Bethmann even addressed the issue of Belgium. Incredibly, the Chancellor noted that France stood ready for an invasion, and that because Germany was now encircled, France could wait, we could not. He then explained that we were forced to ignore the rightful protests of the governments of Luxembourg and Belgium, in an act that, Germany's Chancellor now damningly admitted, was a violation of international law. Apparently eager to justify his state's actions, and perhaps pacify those who upheld the German act as one of unspeakable criminality, Bethmann noted that, This wrong, I speak openly, the wrong we thereby commit, we will try to make good as soon as our military aims have been attained. Bethman then explained that he who is menaced as we are and is fighting for his highest values can only consider how he is to hack his way through. Admiral Turpitz, commander of Germany's high seas fleet that looked likely soon to tangle with Britain's Royal Navy, called Bethman's admission the greatest blunder ever spoken by a German statesman. But the rest of the deputies must not have agreed, since they approved the speech and the actions of their Chancellor with as loud an applause as that which had greeted the French Prime Minister. But after noting the awkward status of Belgium, Bethmann now moved on to the issue of Britain and its neutrality. Noting Gray's speech the day before, Bethmann reiterated the claim made by Lichnowsky that Germany would strive to avoid violating France's northern coasts, with an additional caveat that Germany would pledge itself to leave Belgium and thereafter uphold its integrity once the war had ended. These assurances, Bethmann said, I now repeat before the world with the rising conclusion. Now the great hour of trial has struck for our people, but with a clear conviction we go forward to meet it. Our army is in the field, our navy is ready for battle, behind them stands the entire German nation, the entire German nation united down to the last man. Turpitz noted the frantic applause and highest enthusiasm. While he would also have had an interest in the British issue, since it would be his navy that would stand against Britain's should the two actually fight. Bethman was at this stage unaware of the British ultimatum, and had so far received only the mild protest from London that Belgium's neutrality and integrity be respected. Instructing his officials to wire the speech immediately to Lichnowsky, Bethman obviously still believed in the idea of British non-intervention. He may have been delusional, and he may also have been suffering from the extreme stresses of his job, as was apparently every other leading statesman at the time. The stress and strain placed on the statesman during the July crisis had already killed the Russian ambassador to Serbia, and judging from the appearance of Grey the day before, during the speech, and the wandering admissions of Bethmann regarding Belgium here, one wonders whether the stress was becoming too much, and if Germany's Chancellor or Britain's Foreign Minister were now starting to lose their grip on reality. But then, Bethmann would have viewed the entire situation differently had Grey given him a reason to. While we can fault both men in some way, it does strike one as unusual that the British Foreign Secretary did not apply stronger terms to the note he sent to Berlin the night before. Indeed, it wouldn't be until 7pm that day that the British ambassador would present Britain's ultimatum to Yagov, the German Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs. This time there was no mistaking Britain's stance. She meant war if her demands were not met. To Bethman, who the British ambassador was persuaded by Yagov to call in to be party to the ultimatum, an act which he almost immediately regretted, the delivery of the last ultimatum of the July crisis, 
hit him like a bomb. Everything Bethman had worked for since taking the position of Chancellor in 1909 had been to reorientate Germany towards a closer relationship with Britain. It had been no easy task, but at times over the past year the two states had seemed closer than ever. At a time when a considerable lobby was beginning to emerge within Britain, that counted grey among their number, which was beginning to call into question the usefulness of the Entente with Russia, considering the latter's actions in Persia, a friendship with Britain seemed within the German Chancellor's grasp. Now he was informed of the collapse of the dream, of his policy and of his life's work. Terrible, terrible, he repeated, as Britain Ambassador Gotchen shared the ultimatum with him. Bethman complained that for the sake of neutrality, a word which in wartime has so often been disregarded, just for a scrap of paper, Britain was going to make war in a kindred nation who wants nothing better than to be friends with her. Bethman claimed that Britain's actions now were like striking a man from behind while he was fighting for his life against two assailants. When Gotchen reminded Bethman of Britain's solemn engagement to defend Belgium, Bethman in turn asked, At what price will that compact have been kept? Has the British government thought of that? Gotchen recorded to Grey that by this point Bethman was so excited, so evidently overcome by news of our action, and so little disposed to hear reason, that the British ambassador elected to end the conversation, so as not to add fuel to the fire by further engagement. Bethman claims in his memoirs that it was Gotchen who burst into tears, but it is highly likely that, considering what had just transpired, and what this meant for Germany's future, that the German Chancellor did his fair share of sobbing also. The tears signified the fact that Germany, engaged as it now was in the Schlieven plan and about to thrust in the directions that this plan stipulated, could not now turn back from the Belgian border as Britain requested, and that Britain, having issued this ultimatum, would now have to honour it. This meant that the two greatest military powers in the world, Germany and Great Britain, were thus going to be at war once the ultimatum expired, in four hours' time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 